Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. I'm Chris Moran, host of Culture Conversations, and today you'll be hearing from the pastoral elders of Eternal City Church as they seek to answer the remaining questions from the Theology Untangled series. You'll be hearing questions addressed such as, why was the tree of life in the garden prior to the fall? Can women be deacons? What's the difference between infant and believer's baptism? What are we to make of the bodies of dead saints being raised after Jesus' resurrection? And how can Christians account for the existence of Neanderthals? And is this proof of evolution? I trust you'll be encouraged. Hi, everybody. Culture Conversations podcast. I am with the elders, pastors of Eternal City Church. To my right is the Reverend Wright Rue, the theologian. Next to him is the high and mighty Bishop of Wilkinsburg, Eddie Jones. To the left of me is the sociologist par excellence, Justin Coxham, and I'm the voice of one crying out on the podcast, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we are gonna finish part two of Theology Untangled. Uh, We answered several questions last week and we're gonna finish up tonight. Uh, If you are listening to this podcast and you have theological questions that you would like us to answer on a future podcast, please email eternalcitychurch at gmail.com and we would be happy to do another podcast with your questions. So please submit and we will seek to answer any questions you might have. Our first question goes to Justin, the sociologist par excellence. Justin, why was the tree of life in the garden prior to the fall? It's certainly an interesting question, and I think to answer it, we have to start back in Genesis and look at the creation account of not just the tree of life, but vegetation in general. So I'll read directly from Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we hear... A description of trees in general that are put in the garden that are good for sight and good for food, and then a description of two particular trees, the tree of life uh, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And some of us who have read the Bible before probably know that God tells uh, Adam and Eve, Adam specifically, and Eve, uh, you could say by proxy, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Satan tempts Eve, he does it in a very cunning way. He says, did the Lord God say you must not eat from any tree? And that's not what God said. But very interestingly, there's all these trees in the garden. God gives this specific restriction to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan twists those words to say, does God say you shouldn't eat of any tree? So he twists God's words. And basically, I think it's uh, D.A. Carson in his book, um, The God Who Was There, says that Satan's original lie was that God is a cosmic buzzkill. That God just wants to steal your joy and make you live a, a tireless boring life where you can't do anything. And so we know this, a lot of us probably know the story, right? Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are open. They are then uh, seen for who they truly are. God covers them uh, with the skin of animals. And they've given all these curses in Genesis 3, which leads to the fall, right? In our fallen condition, our fallen state. So I think from the beginning, we can see that the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil will tell us something about the nature of humanity, that God gives us uh, these sort of uh, this dichotomy of choices, and we chose we, we we chose to rebel against God. And we, when I say we, I mean Adam and Eve, being our, our representatives before God, our original parents. And so, there's some interesting verbiage and nomenclature in the uh, first few books of Genesis that talk about this sort of metaphor of the tree. And the first one, because uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis are banished from the garden. And when God gives his original sort of uh, curse, curses and also kind of foretells what humanity will be like in Genesis 3, he says that uh, the woman's offspring or seed will crush the head of the serpent, uh, of Satan, will crush his head. That's Genesis 3.15. What's interesting about that word uh, in Genesis 3.15, offspring, is that it can also be translated seed. So we have this tree of eternal life in the garden originally, And God says that the woman's offspring or seed will crush his head. Then if we fast forward uh, all the way into the New Testament, right? Jesus is born divinely, or you could say planted 
Mm-hmm. And when Jesus comes, he lives the perfect life that we couldn't live. He dies a death for us, and he's raised up and he's crucified on a tree. So he's representing now the eternal life that we lost in the garden is now again brought back to us gracefully and mercifully by Jesus dying on and being the new tree of life that we can have eternal life from God from. So I think that's at a very high level uh, some of the, the ideas or metaphors behind the tree of life being in the garden. That we have the ability uh, originally to live eternally. We lost that because we rebelled against God. But then in Jesus, he's raised up as a new tree of life on a tree as a seed, right? Planted in a woman, put on a tree, crucified for us to give us now the eternal life that we lost in the garden. And I think, uh, again, one of the things that that tree of life metaphor really goes up against was Satan's original lie, which was that God just wants you to live a life of restriction, that he just wants you to, you know, be in the garden and there's this one tree and you can't eat it. So all you got to do is like, look at the tree and be like, man, I wish I could eat that. But even from the beginning, God gave a tree of life, a tree of knowledge of good and evil and all kinds of trees in the garden. So God gave this beautiful creation and there was one restriction, but Satan wants to tempt us and tell us that God is really just telling you, you can't do anything, which is, which is a lie and a lie that he still tells today. So that would be my original attempt at trying to answer that question. Uh, there's a couple maybe resources people could look to if they'd want to get further into it. The first one would be the book I mentioned, The God Who Was There by D.A. Carson. The other one is something you can listen to, uh, The Bible Project. I think it's like an eight-part series, did a really in-depth look at the metaphor of tree, uh, the metaphors of trees representing people all throughout scripture. So it starts in Genesis, goes all the way through to the New Testament where Jesus is cursing trees for not bearing fruit and kind of plays out all of those metaphors for what the Bible is comparing and contrasting when it's talking about trees, but also humans and how they, they interplay and connect. So that's that's all I, I think that's how I try to answer that one from to start. I'm sure there's probably questions, feedback, and things you guys would add to that. Yeah, I'm curious if any of you want to comment on the tree of life being in the book of Revelation and it being for the healing of the nations. You ever notice that? Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. I never studied it. Yeah, I haven't either. I, I just I find it fascinating that it didn't disappear. Like right, yeah. it, it didn't. Yeah. With the with the guarding of the angels from from that you know that was the purpose. They can't eat from the tree yeah. and live forever. Uh, so I'm going to set up these these seraphim angels, and they're going to guard with flaming sword the entrance of the garden so that they don't stay in this fallen state forever. And so, you know, I, I like to, we don't know this, but I like to imagine the garden being the paradise that kind of sunk into uh, that dimensional heavenly realms where Jesus says that he and the thief will be that day. But But is the tree there? Like, it seems to be. Because it shows back up at the end, and, and whether it's metaphor or whether it's re- real, uh, we are eating it, and it's healing. It's a healing fruit, and it heals the nations. I would imagine that all the bloodshed and tension and wars and strife and ethnic you know, tensions and uh, wars being fought between nation against nation, and uh, it's going to be a healing uh, of the nations. And, uh, and, and to take what you said, Justin, Jesus Christ on the tree, being the tree of life, you know, certainly he offers eternal life uh, to whoever believes, you know, will not perish but have eternal life. His, his, his death was also for the healing of the nations, we could say, which I think is really, really encouraging. So there's a, there's a, there is an individual application to the gospel. It's like you repent, you believe, you will have eternal life. But then it's much bigger, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a cosmic dimension to the gospel too. Uh, it's not an either or, though. Mm-hmm. Someone want to comment on this? It's, uh, it's interesting that it starts with the tree in Genesis and also ends with a tree in Revelation. You mm-hmm. know, so I'm, I'm sure that's not an accident. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's something there. You know, what that is, we can you know hash out. But yeah, that is an interesting thing to see that. A tree in both and it in both bookends, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Eddie, <clears throat> next question <clears throat> for you: Can women be deacons according to First Timothy three eleven? Can women be deacon, deacons, deaconess? No, they can. They need okay. to sit down. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Some would, um, so. yeah. Some would say so. No, I believe I believe they can, according to First Timothy three, and I, I'll read it. Um, 
Well, First Timothy 3 talks about um, they can. Um, he gives qualifications for elders and deacons in First Timothy 3. Um, and then in verse 11, he says, Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. And the word wives there in the Greek can also be translated women. So um, it's just, just not referring to wives in particular, but women in general. Um, and so because of that, I would say that yes, because he's, he's giving qualifications for the elders, and then he gives them for the deacons, and then he says wives or women too. So it's not like he's starting a third group he's, he's, he's addressing. Um, and not just the men who are elders and deacons, but also uh, women who are who are uh, who can be deacons as well. And and then it goes back to the deacons, uh, starting in, in verse twelve. But also, there's no qualifications for um, uh, elders' wives. You know, which would be odd if there was qualifications for deacons' wives, but not for elders' wives. So um, that is another, I think, evidence that he's referring to women in general and not uh, the deacons' wives. So I would say yes, that women uh, can be deacons according to this passage. And also in, in Romans chapter 12, I'm sorry, in chapter 16, verse 1, it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, or Sincre, however you say that word. Um, and so that word servant there can be translated deacon or minister. And so we see an example of that, I think, in Phoebe in, in uh, Romans chapter 16. So I would answer that, yes, women can be deacons, and they're referred to as deaconesses in a lot of churches, I think, which, is, which I think is appropriate. So I would answer that in the affirmative, yes, women can be deacons, according to 1 Timothy 3 and 11. Yeah, I agree. And we, we as a church, right. have that office open yes, to women. Uh, yes, same same uh, qualifications uh, would be applied to both. Right. And right. the same assessment would be given to both the men and the women. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, we believe. Yeah. And it's uh, it just means servant and women obviously can be servants, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they're under the, the uh, leadership of, of, the, of the elders. So um, and I think churches ought to definitely leave that open to women and not just have men. As deacons, um, I think that would be uh, uh, an appropriate and honorable thing to do to allow our women to serve in that in that way. Amen. Any further comments, brothers? I think it, it can uh, that question about women functioning in the church. Deacons was your example, but even if you talk about people who differ on whether or not women can be uh, the pastor elder role, actually goes back to the last question which was, um, if, if there is a restriction in Scripture, what Satan wants to do is take our mind and just focus them on that and right. say, see, God isn't good because of this one thing. Mm-hmm. And really, women, just like men, the most liberating thing about the, what the Bible says about women and men is that they can be like Christ. And that's applicable in millions of other places in oh, our yeah. lives, yeah. whether or not we carry the title elder or deacon. So I, I heard someone say that this week, and I was like, yeah, that's really actually good to think about the whole conversation around women in the church is, you know, not, not to frame it like Satan would, which would say, God said, you can't do this as opposed to like women can be all these amazing things. How can we push them into being that same thing for men, but specifically with women in the church, I think we can maybe tend to focus so strictly on what scripture restricts. And there needs to be good conversation about how we interpret those verses, but it needs to move beyond that to like, let's have women be all they can be in Christ. Amen. It's good. Exactly. Yeah, so you're flipping it yeah. and looking at it in a positive light versus a negative light. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, so many times it is just looked at in the negative light. Like you said, we, we, we focus on the one thing we can't do <laughs> rather than the thousand other things we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that's, I think, is, like you said, it tr- can be a trick of the enemy, you know, for us to do that. You know, it's good. Pete, you got anything? No, I think. Well, we summed it up pretty well. Okay. Well, the next question is to you, brother. What is the difference between infant and believer's baptism? And could you also reference the difference between the Presbyterian view of baptism and a Baptistic view of baptism? Sure. Um, first, for, if there's any Presbyterians listening to this, I'm sorry. I'm not a Presbyterian. So. <laughs> we love Presbyterians. We, we love do. Presbyterians. We yes, we uh, do. Many of my heroes are Presbyterians. I love it so, so much. I work at a hospital called Presbyterian. <laughs> <laughs> my wife used to work at Presbyterian Church. Yeah, we are in a Presbyterian church right now. Yes, yeah, that's right. We worship in a Presbyterian church. Yeah. So if, if there are any brothers or sisters who are Presbyterian, you'll probably look at this and say, 
it's very reductionistic what I'll be talking about in terms of that, but I'll do my best as someone who grew up in the Baptist tradition and still holds to believer's baptism. Uh, first thing I would say, just to put some theological terms to things, you have paedobaptism, which is infant baptism, um, essentially the, the practice of sprinkling or pouring over a child, um, a, an infant, a baby, and then credo-baptism is what... Um, what I would hold to, what I believe the church holds to in terms of you are, there is repentance and faith, and then following that repentance and faith, belief in the gospel, you have baptism. Um, so your baptism is based on your confession of faith. It's based on the, the creed of coming to Christ, so credo-baptism. So those are a couple of theological terms. Um, in terms of the Presbyterian view of, of baptism, one thing to make a distinction about is Presbyterians don't believe that baptism erases original sin. Then they're not looking at this as something that is a requirement for salvation. It's not a requirement for belief in the gospel. Um, so that separates itself from like a, a Catholic tradition view of of infant baptism, where they're actually baptizing an infant to erase or remove original sin. So it's not for for the, for the forgiveness of sins. It's really rooted in their belief of covenant theology and um, specifically the Abrahamic covenant. So when you get into Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God covenants himself with Abraham. And in that covenant, he gives circumcision as a sign of the covenant that he has with Abraham. And so they, they take that, that sign of circumcision and they say there is a physical component of this. Um, the actual physical blessing of Abraham that comes from that that is provided and given to Abraham, but there's also a spiritual component of it. And Presbyterians would bring in um, sections like Romans 4, where it talks about Abraham being justified, um, and there's discussions about circumcision, and that being a... I think they would go so far as to say it's a sign of justification, um, not that it actually produces justification, but it is, in a spiritual sense, a sign of it. Um, and they would, again, go to Romans 4 and Abraham being justified. Um, so there's an element of that circumcision. Yeah, because the text in Romans 4 says he was justified prior to circumcision, yeah. purposefully. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that they would then say, well, just like Abraham, we as a sign of the covenant, baptize as a sign of justification, Correct. not to provide. Not to provide it, Correct. And there's also arguments that um, you would see Presbyterians make along the lines of specifically dealing with infants, that this was a sign that was given to Abraham that he also had for Isaac, the son of promise, as well as Ishmael, the one who was not within the line of promise. And so their argument is, so he's, he's giving this sign to two different children, one of which is the covenant people of God, one of which is not. And, and so the argument that some people make against infant baptism that, well, how do you know that child is going to grow up to become a Christian? They say it doesn't matter because they're still part of the covenant family, the covenant community of God. Um, they'd also point to New Testament texts like Acts 16 and the Philippian jailer where it says that Paul that the Philippine jailer repented and Paul baptized him in his whole house. Um, and the, the other argument that I think they could go to prim- when it comes to church history, so you look at early church fathers, you look at church history, and from, from my perspective, you don't really see a ton of discussion about baptism really until Augustine comes along in the 4th century. Hmm. Um, but that's where you start to see a lot of discussion about infant baptism. So Presbyterian would look at that and say, you didn't have, you, from what we have from church history, you don't really see believer's baptism becoming a thing until the Reformation, um, until the 1600s, 15, 1600s. And so because of that absence, um, you would say infant baptism was practiced from the time of the apostles all the way through until the, the Protestant Reformation occurs. So they would look to church history and say that validates their position. Now, if we want to think about contrary opinions, um, 
and consider what, what are some arguments against infant baptism. Um, my perspective is, especially when it comes to the Old Testament text, you're assuming a lot. You're, you're assuming that in Acts 16, you're assuming there's children in the house, mm-hmm. for one. Um, you're assuming that when it says household, it, it refers to all people um, in that household, including infants. When you look and study through the New Testament specifically about the word, when you see baptism, it's always tied in some respects to repentance, faith, belief. Um, you never see any real instances of it talking about baptism and there's not some element of faith involved mm-hmm. with it. And, and I think we could all readily agree that Good point. a, a five-week-old, a four-week-old, a one-month-old, a two-day-old, they, they don't have the capacity right, to right. have faith. And so even, even when you look at like Acts 2 and Peter's preaching, he says repent and believe and then he talks about households right after that in the same context of saying repent and be baptized repent, you and your household baptized. you and your household everyone the lord yeah. our god will call yeah so he and qualifies that he, even though he does he even qualifies that and he positions and categorizes that with repent and be baptized so i think there's there's not from my perspective a, a good standing just in the word usage in the new testament in the way the the discussion is in the New Testament to point to that. A uh, couple other things in addition. Um, Romans 6 talks, I think it's verse 3 and 4, maybe it's 2 and 3, um, discusses baptism where Paul is referencing the, the old man, the old life, comparing it to your new life and that baptism is like you're, you're going into death and you're being raised into life. Again, tying it all back into there's some element of faith in the gospel involved with this. And where I think the Presbyterian strays, they're they're looking at baptism as fit needs or sorry, excuse me, circumcision needs a physical parallel with the New Testament church. And so that physical parallel is baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's rooted in their covenant theology and just their systematics of how they arrived at that ultimately. Where I think what Paul's doing when he talks about circumcision and baptism in the New Testament is it, there's a spiritual element to this that just as circumcision was a you, you hear you hear the scripture talk about circumcision of the heart that there's well, a spiritual component to circumcision <laughs> and in the same respect I think there's a spiritual component to baptism in that it it represents and it signifies regeneration it signifies our justification and our confession of faith um, and so ultimately I, I I take the Credo Baptist, the Baptist believer's baptism perspective. Um, again, I, if you're a Presbyterian, you believe the gospel, and you practice this way, I, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't think they're, they're violating the gospel. But I, I would say from a practical perspective, and I've never been in this, so this is me speaking from just what I would anticipate experiencing as a child having been baptized if I was an infant I wonder how much they look to that and rely on that as they get older and maybe even leave the faith to say well I was baptized so I think I'm okay I do wonder just practically how that manifests itself out and if there's and I think you have to really teach about what that baptism is in order to to really fully convey to someone who does leave the faith like you can't look to that as justification for your entrance into his kingdom. You can't do that. Uh, Resources-wise, if you want to investigate this, um, probably the best book out there is The Three Views of Baptism. Uh, St. Clair Ferguson writes the Presbyterian section. Bruce Ware writes the the Baptist section. And there's a third view that I don't think anyone believes except this one guy who wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a Lutheran. It's not a good one. No. no. The, the book specifically deals with... Um, the difference was between really uh, believers' baptism and the Presbyterian view of baptism. They don't even account for the the Catholic view of baptism being a sacrament of grace of any kind. So it's an interesting read, um, worthwhile read, and Bruce Ware wins at the end, in my opinion. So. <laughs> Bruce Ware, yeah. Um, so Pete, I I take a view that the. The baptism is a sign of the new covenant, but I differ with the Presbyterians in that 
I think the old covenant prophesies the new covenant about who we should give the sign to. Are you with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah so I'm referencing Jeremiah mm-hmm. where he says, everyone in this covenant will know me. Yep. And so if that's the distinguishing one of the distinguishing marks of the new covenant, then wouldn't we want to give the new covenant sign, which I think that baptism is a sign of the gospel or new covenant. Uh, the Lord's Supper is also a sign. It points to something. You proclaim the mm-hmm. Lord's death to him. So it's a new covenant sign in a sense too uh, of, of the gospel that you're in. Um, why would we give the sign to somebody whom... Uh, does not yet know the Lord personally. When Jeremiah says, everyone in this covenant, the distinguishing mark, one of them will be, they will all know me. No one will teach his brother or neighbor, know the Lord, for they will all know me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to the why, just because I, I agree with you. Um, the, the only thing I, I think what Presbyterian would go back to would be specifically the Abrahamic covenant, um, and the the blessings that are there that there's a there's a physical element and a spiritual element with Abraham, and and I think they're they're doing their best in the system of theology that they have to handle New Testament texts that I mean in reality there are some there are some elements that, of Acts sixteen where it says it does say plain reading of the text says household right so but they're, you're they're you're, you're also through their lens you're also accounting, if you're a Baptist, you're saying, well, of course, they believe, too. Yeah. Same with Lydia's household, yep. right? Absolutely. Like, she she and her household were baptized. But we could assume that they also believed, along with Lydia mm-hmm. and along with the Philippian jailer, yeah. which, yeah, we would baptize everyone in the household who believed. Yeah. Um, could we quickly, we don't have to spend long here, in Corinthians, mm-hmm. where uh, the one, there's so there's one believer parent, yep. and then there's an unbeliever parent, but the children are holy or sanctified yeah. because of that situation. Can we talk about that? Because I think that's relevant to, mm-hmm. well, if you're, if you're not a Presbyterian and you're like, well, you know, is the, am I missing anything? If, if I take a Baptistic view, like am I spiritually missing a blessing here? Or if you're, you know, maybe a Presbyterian using that as an mm-hmm. argument for your position. Can we talk about that very quickly? Yep. Uh, it's first Corinthians seven fourteen. First thing to note about that verse is baptism is nowhere in that chapter. Um, it's not in the context of that verse. It's not in the context of that chapter. Paul's not talking about baptism at all. And so to to read baptism, infant baptism, into that, um, I think is a stretch. You're, you're adding something to the text that isn't there. The, the context of 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul um, affirming the, the marriage covenant. And you, you, have, you have a lot of sexual sin and sexual problem within the Corinthian church. And as he comes into to chapter seven, there's, I think there's a, a thought process within the church that the, um, that maybe marriage isn't the best thing that there's, there's problems with marriage. And Paul even says like, I wish all of you would be single like me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you come to that verse and he's talking about, you have a believing spouse and non-believing spouse um, I, th- I think what he wants to do is affirm that this relationship is still legitimate. That just because you have a believing spouse and a non-believing spouse, there there is a beauty within the marriage covenant and the marriage relationship that is is still valuable and should still maintain. And to to have the the believing spouse separate themselves from the non-believer is to illegitimize the marriage relationship and the marriage covenant. Um, you also see in that verse that the the non-believing spouse is also made holy, and yet there's never a reference to why are they not baptized. So that's another question you'd have to ask. So if if the being made holy is referencing um, in, the ba- in the covenant baptism of some kind, you're going to have to wrestle with then why isn't the non-spouse forced to be baptized as well, uh, or the non-believing spouse forced to be baptized as well. Um, and so I, I think what it's doing is he bring, as Paul brings in the children is to say the marriage relationship is legitimate and it is beautiful. And so you shouldn't separate from that. As a believer, you should seek to maintain that relationship, even with a non-believing spouse. And the children, in the same respect, 
are now legitimized by that marriage relationship being established and being maintained. So that's the way I look at it. It's a challenging verse in yeah. general, what that means. But I, I don't think you can read baptism into yeah. that. I would just add a tiny bit to that in that um, one of the ways in which they're holy or sanctified, which could mean set apart, because holy could mean like God and he's mm-hmm. holy by himself. There's no one holy like him. But then there's instruments in the temple that are holy. They're mm-hmm. set apart for that use only. They're sanctified, set yeah. apart, right? So I think that they're, the children are holy in that. Well, they have been given a believing parent. Mm-hmm. So they're going to get the gospel. They're going to get the Holy Spirit filling that parent and that Holy Spirit's fruit, that Holy Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's mm-hmm. fruit, uh, spilling out onto the children. Mm-hmm. And so they get to experience the power of God in a unique way where if there was only, if there was no believing parents, they wouldn't get that gospel yeah. witness. They wouldn't get the witness of the power of the Holy Spirit in that, in that spouse. And, and so I think that that's another way in which they're set apart. They're sanctified because they have that witness in their home and they see it physically with their eyes and they're in relationship with that parent who has the, the, the God who is inside of them. Yeah, I would agree with that. I agree. Brothers, want to add anything before we move on? No. No, no, no? Okay. no, nothing would be productive for this discussion. Okay, <laughs> that was really one interesting question though for someone who is who holds to believers' baptism. Um, I grew up in a tradition that when you became a Christian, you were pretty quickly after that baptized, even as a child. So you're five, six years old, and you profess faith in Christ. They you're baptized pretty quickly after that. Next week, two weeks later, something like that. Um, some traditions they baptize immediately afterwards. Um, it does it does raise for me just a practical question of should a child who is at a young age is still within the parents' home and for all practical purposes isn't going to rebel against their parents' belief system at least initially until they're probably into their teenage years at least in our culture and context. Is it practically right or good to baptize a child who is six years old and professes faith in Christ? I think it's just practically something you have to wrestle with. Like, what is the difference practically between that and infant baptism? Yeah, like six years old in that definition. Yeah, and, You've got six years difference. Yeah, I mean, is, is that practically a significant difference where I'm sure we know countless people who have made a profession at four, five, six years old and then... By the time they're 15, 16, they're not even missing the net anymore. And by the time they're 18 and they're no longer under their parents' roof, they're out of the house. Yeah. So just some things to think through. Yeah, I, I can wrestle a little bit out loud with that. Um, our church has baptized not very young children, like, but we have baptized, let's say, 8 to 10-year-olds. And we've interviewed them and, and got a credible profession but I've always wrestled with that because I am that kid, you know, like I had that story growing up where I had a childlike profession of faith. And when I turned 11 or 12, I turned away from the Lord and I don't think I was born again. And I, in the back of my mind, I just know that that's a possible reality mm-hmm. for the person that's being baptized under our care is that you could easily turn away from the Lord just like I did. Yeah. So I'm hesitant. I know that Dever and, and Capitol Hill, they don't baptize someone unless they're 18 or over. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. And th- that's how they do away with that whole, mm-hmm. you know, possibly baptizing someone who doesn't yeah. have a, a, a long-standing profession or might turn away. Now, you could baptize someone who's 18, and when they're 20, they could turn away. Yeah, like, that's yeah, a possible absolutely. reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But we're not... That, that's called apostating. But we're not to... We're not to, I think, by the pattern of Acts, do a ton of... Um, waiting to see if the profession yeah, is Yeah, we're not real. policing it. Yeah, it seems yeah. like from the book of Acts, there's a profession and there's a very yeah. quick baptism. Like Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Right. Look, there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And so like, it seems like from that account, he hears the gospel, he believes, and within minutes he's in the water. Yeah. Uh, Acts 2 seems to be the same way. 3,000 baptized and added to the church that mm-hmm. day. So in practice versus... You know, theology. I think there are some things to work out there. Um, I would not baptize a child who didn't have a profession. Let's at least say that. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's something to wrestle with for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Next question goes to me. What are we to make of the bodies of dead saints being raised after Jesus' resurrection? Man, what a, what a strange account in Matthew <laughs> 27. So I'll read the account and then I'll seek to give some, some answers. And, uh, and then I would love to hear from you guys on this too. So this, is, this occurs in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53. I'll start reading at 51. So Jesus dies. He cries out with a loud voice in verse 50, yields up his spirit, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, so the difference here is, Jesus died, and so there's an earthquake, and the temple curtain is ripped. But then he jumps, Matthew jumps here to after the resurrection, because it says, And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, And then he goes back to the account of, of the immediate death. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the son of God. All right. So 52 and 53 speak of the tombs being open after the resurrection. And it says many bodies. So not a few, many, and they were bodies, not ghosts as we would know them. They weren't spirits of people come, you know, back to visit. Their bodies were actually raised. Uh, And the fallen asleep, that's a Christian word for Christians who die, you know, so they're actually dead. And not only did they rise, but after the resurrection, they went into Jerusalem, the holy city, and appeared to many. Mm-hmm. So many bodies appearing to many. I, I find this truly fascinating. So here, here's some things I think that we can think about. Um, first, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Uh, this is the great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance. Jumping down to verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So there you have um, Paul talking about Jesus being the first of the resurrected people, but he is only... Uh, the first, and then there's many to come after him. Mm-hmm. Okay, So th- there's two options here, and, and we can talk about both options. One option is these saints got resurrection bodies. They got their resurrection bodies early. That's a possibility. Second possibility is what happened to them happened was what happened to Lazarus in John 11 and 12, where Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. He was dead four days and he comes out with the grave clothes still wrapped on him and, hey, unwrap him, give him some food. So th- those are the two options because the text clearly says bodies of the saints and they appear to many. So there's a real physicalness to this. So I think those are our only two options. We, we got these are resurrected bodies of which Jesus is the first fruits, like 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, or these are Lazarus-like resurrections and these people then died again. Those are our two options. I don't see any other ones. Um, So in Daniel 12, 2, we have this prophecy, which is fascinating. And it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's Daniel talking about, you know, the, the ones asleep, dead, but they will awake. They will come back. And I think he's talking here about judgment, everlasting life or everlasting contempt, which means, I think, eternal punishment. Mm -hmm. So this is what we are to make of it. Um, Jesus' resurrection was such a monumentous event that it caused other resurrections. (laughs) And, And that's astounding, you know, and God is able, clearly, at the end, you know, Revelation 20, 11 through 15 shows this. 
that one day every dead person will be raised. You know, John says, I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne. Uh, and from him who sat on an earth and sky fled from his presence. So there, there's coming a day when there's going to be a great resurrection of the just and the unjust. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like this is a little preview. This is a little preview of what is to come. However, the difference between the great resurrection and this resurrection, uh, whether, again, they got their bodies early or they got you know, Lazarus-like resurrections or the little girl, Talitha, who, who was dead a little bit and then Jesus woke her up and, and she came back to life. Um, the difference is these are saints because it says the bodies of the saints. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I, which way do I lean? I think I lean they were more Lazarus-like resurrections than new bodies because I like to have like a, a consistent, <laughs> there's going to be one day when there's a great resurrection and it's all going to happen at once. So for me, I've always imagined, and maybe it's just my imagination, I've always imagined Jesus is the only one with a resurrected body in heaven right now. I don't even think Moses and Elijah have their resurrected bodies. I don't think Enoch has a resurrected body at this point. Um, so my, my view, but I could be wrong, is that these were resurrections and then they died again. And then one day they will get their new bodies again. However, I could be wrong. Anyone want to weigh in on that question? If we're not prepping, you did a pretty good job. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's an interesting passage. Um, So I, I think the structure of the, of the passage there is, is unique. Um, I actually take the position that as, as strange as this may seem, the after the resurrection actually points to what comes after it in terms of they went into the cities and showed themselves but their actual the actual physical resurrecting of their bodies did happen at the cross um which i i i know there's some people who like i mean you just articulated that they they would state that when the resurrection occurred that's when all these other bodies came i take the position that when the cross when jesus died you see the tearing of the veil, you see the earthquakes, the tombs are open at that point. And so between Jesus' death and resurrection, there's these newly resurrected bodies that are doing something. I don't know what. But it's not until the actual resurrection occurs that they go and they show themselves to many people. That's the position I take. So 53 when it says, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and prayer. So you would almost want a comma after yeah, tombs. I, absolutely. And coming out of the tombs, comma, yeah. after his resurrection, yeah. they went into the holy city and appeared to men. I think it naturally lends itself to follow afterwards. I could be wrong, but that's the position I take. Um, and I, I think there's a level of significance to that because... Like you mentioned with 1 Corinthians 15, the the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. That's the basis of our resurrection. But there is something I think Matthew's doing when he says the cross is the the cause of all of that. Like you can't have the resurrection without his death. Right. And so there's something that happens at the cross that is so powerful that it raises bodies from graves. And, and it's, as I would agree with you, it's a precursor of what we ultimately have future to come. Um, but there's something unique about the cross being the ultimate, like the cause of all of that. And it ultimately rests in the resurrection. It's, it's interesting though, because not that it's a, it's a huge theological point. Um, but I do tend to agree with you that these were not glorified bodies. There is something I think that's consistent with saying Jesus is the only glorified body in heaven currently. Um, and we don't know what happened to these people. And so there's no reference of them. Yeah, there's nothing in church history about it. Yeah, they they never... in this text only. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's no discussion of like, well, when Jesus ascended, they ascended with him. There's not that talk. (laughs) And so I tend to think along the same lines that these are people who, like Lazarus, were raised... And then they, uh, and then they ended up dying again at some point. But I think it points to the power of the cross to do that. Um, that something, something cataclysmic happened there at the cross. Like you have the veil being torn, earthquakes, everything's pitch black. There was something significant about that, 
And that ultimately was the cause for the resurrection and everything that occurs with that. So yeah. It's, in, it's a very interesting verse. Yeah, very interesting, weird verse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't say how long they lived. Mm-mm. No. Yeah, so we can... I mean, we make assumptions about that. They lived another 10 years or they lived 10 days yeah. <laughs> or 10 minutes, you know, and died again. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't say, which is, I mean, I guess it yeah. wasn't important, obviously, but... It um, does yeah, it does point to, as well, just the physical material nature of what the new heaven and new earth will be like when we are raised. Like, there's a material oh, yeah. element of oh, yeah. what we will be. In the eternal state, I call it an earthiness. Yeah. By by that I mean physical. Yeah. It's very yeah, physical. Yeah. Yeah. And so they went to Jerusalem too. It made that specific detail into the holy city in yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like they you know went shopping or something. They went to Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting too. You know. And in reference to, you know, this this gospel and Mark's gospel being written, all this stuff happened publicly, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then it was written within the lifetimes of all those who publicly yeah. witnessed this yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. And For all, one of those people could have still been alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They yeah, read Matthew's it. verse about them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be, can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. That yeah. would be that would be weird. Yeah, yeah. That's something. Yeah. Yeah. I I find that a really helpful thing to think about though. In that, like, these Gospels were written not long after all these Mm -hmm. events took place. And most of the people, I'm sure some people died who witnessed them, but a lot of people were still alive who saw these things. saw these things, yeah, exactly, yeah. These were not written hundreds of years later. These were not written, I know people try to say that, skeptics, but no, they weren't. They weren't. They were written early, early, yeah. Yeah. So it's a great defense for the Gospels being historic and accurate in that they could easily be refuted by people who no, that never happened mm-hmm. exactly dark. exactly yeah. uh, you know mm-hmm. the, the, there was no earthquake yeah. at the time there was no you know all the priests the high priest mm-hmm. the Levites they saw the, the curtain rip mm-hmm. and they were alive uh, to see it happen and then to see these accounts and they tried to silence them as they talked about it yeah yeah. You know, yeah. they didn't deny it they were just like shut up stop talking about this right, or yeah. we're gonna we're gonna yeah. destroy you yeah. is it better to obey God than or obey man you be yeah. the judge mm-hmm. yeah. You know, so it, I mean, it's a great, you know, from a skeptical standpoint, thing to think about. If you're a skeptic, you know, how could it be that these gospels have stood the test of time when these were written so close to the events that they talk about in such detail? In such detail, yeah. you know, yeah. In such a thing too, in such detail, and they give names and places. And I mean, Luke in, in chapter one, these uh, reign of Tiberius. Yeah, he, when he names all these names and yeah. places and. Yeah. And it's like people could easily said that is not true. Nobody did that. <laughs> Nobody said that. All right, move it. Go talk to Jim down the street. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Rose from the dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You remember Jim? The, the funeral we, we went know his to. His name was Jim. That's my <laughs> Jim. Why is his name Jim? I don't know. Good Jewish name. Good Jewish. How about Jude? <laughs> Jude. James. Jim James. James. Jim Jeremiah. We'll call him Jeremiah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Last question. Last question. Justin, how can Christians account for the existence of Neanderthals? And is this proof of evolution? What a good question. Yeah. Mm. I have not and had not, before I read that question, thought much about the Neanderthals and how they related to what the Bible says about humanity and human nature. And, and thinking about this, I mean, I'd heard the term Neanderthals before. But this was an actual group of people or, or, or a group of, uh, we'll say, living beings that existed. And there seemed to be two camps um, about the idea of who the Neanderthals are. The first camp says that the Neanderthals were uh, people, just like any other group of people who existed in a specific location. And just because of you know, time and, and the harshness of the condition they lived in, they died out. So the like... When you think of Neanderthals, and, and for those of you who haven't heard the term before, a lot of times they're depicted as cavemen, people mm-hmm. who are short, who, you know, knuckles mm-hmm. kind of drag on the ground, they're very mm-hmm. hairy. Mm-hmm. One camp would say that these Neanderthals were a, uh, a subhuman group of people who existed and who were, were not fully human and who had different skulls and different bi- biological makeup than a human being would. The other camp would say no, the Neanderthals were just a group of people who existed in a region who shared common physical features 
and they died off over time. What's interesting is that within both of those camps, there are Christians. So you have Christians who would say uh, a more pure creationist view, which would be that the, uh, the Neanderthals, and this is like the Ken Hams, if you've ever heard that term, um, he, when he writes about this, he says, no, the Neanderthals were people, just like any other group of people, like Asian or Italian Mayans, or Aztecs. Mayans. Yeah, exactly. They existed and they died out because they didn't have the resources to survive, but they were people. So I think from Ken Ham's perspective, the caveman depictions we see where they look uh, subhuman or almost like apes aren't actually accurate. Mm-hmm. They look like someone else, and if you dressed them up, they'd fit right into society. Mm-hmm. That's what the Ken Ham's of the world would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are other people, uh, Christian and non- who would say that, no, the Neanderthals were uh, not quite fully human, didn't share the same uh, exact DNA structure as a human would, and were some type of uh, non-human creature that existed. What's interesting about that view is that we then have to square that with Genesis 1 and 2, mm-hmm. with the creation account, mm-hmm. and with the fact that God made Adam and Eve, human man, uh, mankind, in his image. And so... Where I think we have to then parse is if these people will we'll go down the, uh, the more evolutionist path for a, a second here. If these people were created and they were not people, but if these organisms, these, these, these beings were created, they weren't fully human, then where do we account for them in scripture? Mm-hmm. Because there is no, to, to our knowledge, you know, description of cave people or subhuman kind of ape people in scripture. So then we have to get into, well... Um, what do we do with the seven-day creation and the, the account of creation? Is it something we take literally, or is it something where, there, and we talked about this during the, during the actual preaching series, are the seven days a literal, sequential, one-day, 24-hour period that happens after the other, or are they eras, mm-hmm. ages, right? Uh, could it be 100 years and it's just, it's just the term day is sort of an all-encompassing term to mean a passage of time? If you take that view... Then you could say, well, if these days were, let's say, thousand-year periods, then these uh, ape people could have existed in one of those days and were just not described because they died out as uh, the creation was coming into form and coming into being. And then there's also the the idea that these days are actual days, but there were just large chunks of time in between them mm-hmm. where these uh, subhuman ape people existed. And by the way, I think a lot of people who are more on the, uh, I'll say, evolutionary view of, di- of this discussion, would also say that's where you would put the dinosaurs, right? The dinosaurs were, you know, we have the, the evidence of their records, we'll say that they were alive, and that they were part of an era that was somewhere in that, in that day structure that was an actual day, but it was maybe thousands of years as each of those days were described. Those are my, my real quick nickel tour summary of the two views Mm -hmm. of how people could view uh, the Neanderthals. There are, I think, Christians, not I think, I know there are Christians who fall into both of those camps, the more strict creationist view that says that uh, the Neanderthals were were just people like you and me, and they were just a group of people who existed in a specific place and time, and they died out. And then there's more the uh, evolutionist view, which would say that they existed in some era and that era is just not described literally in scripture. Um, and the days are either, uh, the days make up those eras that they existed in, or the days are in, the eras are in between those days that are described in scripture. For both of those, I would say that there are two overarching ideas that Christians do need to agree on. So like I said, there are probably Christians on both sides of that discussion. I don't know if you guys would say that you're in either one of those sides. Um, for me, I think there are two overarching ideas that we need to be able to say every Christian should agree on this. And those two overarching ideas are one, that God is solely responsible for creation. That God is the one who spoke creation into existence. Uh, be that it happened over seven literal days or it happened with seven days that are thousand year eras, I think we can probably parse that out and maybe disagree on it. The second thing we need to agree on as Christians is that humans, mankind, are made uniquely in the image of God. So Genesis 1, 27 and 28 only applies to human beings. Doesn't apply to animals, doesn't apply to apes. We are the only ones who bear God's image and who have an actual soul and spirit. Mm -hmm. So we're created in his image and created to rule over creation as he did and as as he gave us the creation mandate too. So to me, those are the two things that I would say 
Uh, we need to agree on those. And so the, the way the question's framed is, does this prove, is this, is this proof of evolution? It could be, and some Christians would say that's not necessarily a bad thing because evolution fell into the eras in which God created the world. Um, I would be more concerned of, uh, I would say that it, it may be, according to some Christians, but it's not proof that God didn't create the world. And it's not proof that mankind is not made in the image of God. Those are the two questions that we need to draw a straight black line and say, mm-hmm. that idea does not cross this line. Um, whether or not it's proof of evolution, I think Christians disagree on that. Christians who are very smart, who study and, and really get into the archaeology and science behind this. Um, as I said, I had not really thought about this. And as I'm describing the kind of views of those uh, opposing uh, ways to interpret this question, I really don't know which one I'd fall into. So that's my, my nickel tour uh, mm-hmm. of that question. Those two underlying truths that I said we do need to hold to. Mm-hmm. People, humans, are created in God's image and God is responsible for creation. Mm-hmm. Those are the two that I think we need to really, with a rigid fist, hold on to. That's good. I would make two arguments um, for a position that I would take. One is if you have eras of time where there's death before Genesis 3, death of non-plant life, mm-hmm. um, you, have, you have death before the fall, which it seems to me pretty clear that God said that the consequences of sin will be death mm-hmm. and that you have the killing of the first animal and they're mm-hmm. wearing it and it's like a, a substitute sacrifice. There's a bunch of gospel there. That's the first problem I would have. Second problem I would have uh, with with an evolutionary view, mm-hmm. you know, dinosaurs dying before Genesis three, and people, races of people, well, ethnicities, we should say, nationalities of people, mm-hmm. um, one race, the human race. I think we're all agreed on that. Mm-hmm. Um, is is this? Um, we can often lay our presuppositions on the text yeah. and then shape what we see as evidence. Mm-hmm. In that presuppositions image, mm-hmm. what I mean by that is, if we if we are absolutely convinced that, that either God created the world with evolution as His tool, which I understand there are very smart people. I think the guy who mapped the human genome uh, believes that. Uh, I can't remember his name, Francis. Anyway, uh, there's very smart scientists mm-hmm. who who believe this. You know, so they're not fools who believe that uh, God used evolution as a tool. Um, I think that you can have a, a, a presupposition like evolution, then you have to fit your evidence to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that we don't do the same thing, yeah. because I, I believe firmly that Genesis 3 and the fall caused the first death, and there was no death before that. And so I fit my view, uh, even of this question, in with that. So I'm like, well, they had to be you know, in God's image if they were people and they died just like the Aztecs died and the Mayans died and the other people groups died. Mm -hmm. God wipes out people groups in the Old Testament by the Jewish people judging them for their sin. Um, And and so it wouldn't be anything new for people groups to be wiped out. And, you know, even in in certain parts of Uganda, even just because I have connections there, we as a church have connections there. There are different people groups, even within that country, that look physically very different, mm-hmm. very different. Mm-hmm. And in European countries, it's the same. And in you know Australia, it's the right. same. Amazing. So just because you're even of the same country or region or ethnicity, doesn't mean you're not going to have a bunch of different physical features. Mm-hmm. So you know you, you can reconstruct those fossils in a way that might seem to you very ape-like. But that doesn't mean that that construction is accurate because you never right. saw them. Right. right. You weren't there mm-hmm. to see those people. You didn't see how they lived. You didn't see what their tools were. Or you know, mm-hmm. we we have those images. You know, you see the monkey, mm-hmm. and then you oh, see yeah, the evolution yeah. growing up into a fully upright mm-hmm. man. And yeah, that's that the was, famous yeah, that Darwinian you know worldview yeah. explanation. Money. Anyone else want to weigh in there? I'm just that's my two arguments. No, for that why. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The only other thing I would add is when you when you look at even. Genesis 4 and it gets into Cain and Abel Mm -hmm. and you see that story immediately after that it talks about pretty significant advancements in technology in people building cities Mm -hmm. people using Mm -hmm. stone like people rapidly advancing so there's there's an intellectual nature to man that's evident from the very beginning 
the to say they're making musical instruments. And yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're mining metal to do so. Exactly. Yeah. There's they're being creative. There's a lot of these things that would argue against having a a group of people who are anti-intellectual and unable to really even put together sentences except for grunts essentially is what I think the <laughs> yeah. typical persona is so I think to your what you were arguing is also true but even just the evidence we do have in scripture of the earliest humans interacting they appear to be super intelligent people mm-hmm. who are capable of doing a lot of incredible things yeah. you need tools to mine you can't yeah. use your fingers right? <laughs> so like yeah. Yeah. if you're pulling yeah. metal out of the ground and shaping it into musical yeah. instruments and you know, you, you got to have some intellect there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're pioneering this stuff. You're not building off of yep. the former architects and the former, mm-hmm. you know, Sears catalog. So is it one group saying it's part human and part something else? Caveman, basically. So like some, the Geico some, commercial. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some, yeah, some yeah, form yeah, of yeah. subhuman, I would say subhuman kind of ape. Ape-ish person, okay. who, like right. Pete's saying, kind of grunts, mm-hmm. and is, okay. but isn't isn't is a Primitive different tools. species yeah, yeah, than yeah, what yeah, you yeah. and I would be yeah. considered. So, Watch okay. Night at the Museum sometime. There's a couple of them. In there. <laughs> there what? Night at the Museum. There's a couple <laughs> of cavemen in there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Is like the caveman. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, you, so we've always heard that growing up. Yeah, you you go in the History Channel and you watch certain you know evolutionists try to explain the world. And, and it's it's the one exp- explanatory tool they have. Like So you mm-hmm. have to fit everything into that presupposition. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, we fit everything into the, the seven-day account and the fall and creation, fall, redemption, recreation. That's our presupposition because that's what the Bible says. And we believe the mm-hmm. Bible is true and accurate. And so, you know, to be fair, we're doing it too. However, the question is... You know, evolution is often put forth as fact, right, but it's yeah. faith just yeah, exactly. as much, yeah. if not it's takes well, more faith of evolution. to believe evolution yeah. than it does to believe the Bible's true. It yeah. does, yeah. So if we want to say, okay, you believe that, not because of evidence, not because of, you know, scientific discovery. Mm-hmm. So the same evidence is interpreted by Christian scientists differently. Mm-hmm. So it's not an evidence thing. It's your interpretation of the evidence thing. Mm-hmm. And so when we, we take that to this Neanderthal question... It's, okay, well, you're putting your evolution glasses on, mm-hmm. and you're looking at it, and that's evidence to you. Mm-hmm. Well, we could say that God created many different people groups from Adam and Eve. Acts 17 says, from one nation of men, he made all people groups. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm changing that a bit, but that's what it says. Mm-hmm. And so we could say this is easily a people group that had different physical features. You know, you look at Manute Bull. You know, remember him, the basketball mm-hmm. player? Seven, Dude seven. was huge. Yeah, yeah. You know, seven, compared eight, to, seven, yeah. you know, um, some Asian countries produce very smaller, small mm-hmm. people. So it, 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 different people groups have different physical features. That's not bad. Right. right yeah, That's yeah. God's glory, right? right? That's yeah, his yeah. diverse beauty. That's what he does. So there's, you know, I, I don't have a problem with saying intellectually or scientifically or biblically that Neanderthals could have just simply been one of those people groups yep. who died out and we have found their fossil records and we don't have we don't have that people group anymore. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plain and simple. The, uh, the book uh, Total Truth by Nancy Piercy is really good on mm. maybe not this discussion in particular but framing this discussion insofar as I think it presents a very good view of a lot of times we, we think of science in one hand and theology or perhaps God in the other hand. But really, science exists as a discipline because God, from the beginning, was taking chaos mm-hmm. and making order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so every mm-hmm. hypothesis that you test, that you can say, oh, I test this hypothesis and it comes out the same every time, you'd say that's really good science. That science exists because God, from the beginning, mm-hmm. made the world an orderly place. And the more we find out about science the more our scientific theories become accurate and not just theories themselves. I think actually that point us that, that doesn't move us further from God. I think that actually pushes us more towards God yeah. because he did create the world with order. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think a lot of people like science to begin with is that we can have a hypothesis, we can test it and we can see the beautiful and glorious ways that it kind of comes back and points to, Oh, there's some central idea and truth in all of this. And we as Christians believe that that is God yeah. or a part of God, we should say maybe. So, 
Yeah, his order. It's order. his created order. Yeah, exactly. Just like yeah. the way bo- you know, water always boils at this temperature, but when you move certain elevations, right. it either falls or rises. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting, but it's still consistent. Yeah. You can still test that consistency. You know, um, That's God's providence and glory. Okay, so we have to wrap it up. I'm getting looks at the watches. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, um, at least for us this evening. On Theology Untangled Part 2. We love you guys. Culture Conversations. Out.